Fate is often associated with the divine. It's this idea that things are preordained by a higher power and that outcomes are out of an individual's control. There's no doubt that there's a lot of life that can't be controlled. But there's another way to look at destiny. It can be about making foundational choices that give a particular vision the best chance to be realized over time. The outcome may look predestined to an outsider, but in reality, destiny is being determined by an established mission. The major choices that underpin it and the many smaller decisions adjusted as needed made to achieve it. This does not mean there will never be setbacks or failures. It simply means this mentality increases the opportunities within one's control to move ever closer to the goal. We have had and continue to have really, I think, some of the best minds in the space, in the domain. And that's super critical to anybody who's going to tackle this. But I think we've always had that sort of vertical integration and we want to pull it all together and have that seamless hardware software interface and the ability to really control our destiny. That's Bruce Baumgartner, the vice president of procurement and strategic partnerships at Zooks, a vertically integrated autonomous vehicle company that appears destined to build a fleet of autonomous taxis. But is Zook's desire to control its destiny only about succeeding at building autonomous vehicles, or does it have an even higher mission it's striving to achieve? Find out on this episode of Business X Factors how destiny can be controlled by an individual person and even by an entire company if that drive is aligned with a higher purpose. I'm Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org, Welcome to Business X-Factors. Each week, we'll take a look at the secret sauce that takes companies to the highest levels of success and then unpack how they got there. We'll explore how these organizations are run and what's so special about the people, the culture, the processes that make it all happen. What is technology for? Our friends at Highland believe technology is for transforming the way you work, for delivering complete information when and where you need it so you can be more agile, more empowered, more connected through each interaction and in every relationship. Highland believes in technology thoughtfully designed to create better customer experiences. Highland is your X factor for better performance. Go to highland.com forward slash insights to learn more. That's H-Y-L-A-N-D.com slash insights. From a young age, Bruce seemed destined to join the military and become a pilot. Though he did end up in the Navy, Fate threw a twist his way. His response can be instructive to all of us. You have a decade of service in the Navy at the start of your career. 
What initially kind of drew you to the U.S. Naval Academy? To be honest with you, it was I had an uncle in the service. He was a warrant officer in the Army. He flew helicopters. And so I grew up around that. And then my mother, she was always a defense contractor. So I feel like her colleagues that would come around and that I would see as a kid and talk to, a lot of them had that background. They were former military officers. They were coming out of the academy. I think it's like inevitable being in the Washington, D.C. area. You're going to be exposed to that. Truth be told, I applied to the Naval Academy out of high school, and I was told to reapply the following year because you've probably heard stories of this if you have friends that have gone to a military academy, but they dig so much into your medical history, even as a teenager. They had found a a notation in a doctor's note, literally hand-scribbled on my medical record that I had a wheeze when I was seven years old. And so they were like, do you have asthma? And at that point, 10 years later, I was like, no, I don't have asthma. I've never had asthma. I'm an athlete, like never had an issue. And they're like, yeah, we're going to have to look into that. So I actually ended up going to the University of Virginia for a year before I was able to reapply and go to the academy. The setback of not immediately getting into the Naval Academy could have been devastating for a young person who seemed destined for that path. But for Bruce, it became an opportunity to go to university for a year to start a different type of formative team building experience. So I was an athlete in college. I picked up rowing when I was at the University of Virginia. I really wanted to play soccer there. I think UVA at the time was like the best soccer team in the country and they had been for a long time. And so I was definitely not going to play soccer there. And so I had some friends suggest to me to row. And so I ended up rowing at Virginia and I really took to it and ended up continuing on to do so at the academy. I mean, I think rowing as a sport itself is that ultimate team dynamic, right? Like you're all in the boat together. Any one individual not pulling for the team or not picking up their share is sort of dragging the whole thing down. You know, you're in it together. You're up early. You're up at 445 in the morning. You're on the water when it's freezing at 515 for a couple of hours before, you know, breakfast and school, et cetera. And I think that four years with my teammates was just ingrained a just that like ultimate team spirit. And I had the opportunity my senior year to to captain the team. And I think just starting to have a chance to to take over more of a leadership position like that was was pretty cool. And it really, I think, inspired me to to look for those kinds of opportunities in the private sector many years later as I transitioned out of the military. It almost feels like these bumps in Bruce's journey are part of some cosmic master plan. From another perspective, it's clear that Bruce's response to adversity led to difficult situations becoming something to learn from. When I graduated from the academy, I went immediately to pilot training. And within very, very short period of time after starting to fly, the Navy basically stepped in. It was a factor of sort of timing as many things are with, with the military services, right? Like we need this, you don't have it, or we need it, you do have it. At the time, 2003 is when I had graduated, they decided that typically they would give people who are very tall, and I'm 6'5", they would give people who are too tall to fly, quote unquote, they would give you a waiver and say, sign here, and in all is well, you can go off and fly, and maybe you can't fly everything, but you can fly these prop planes or these helicopters. And at the time, they just said, we're not doing that. We're not doing waivers. So you are too tall, you are no longer going to fly planes. And so that was kind of my hopes and dreams at the time were pretty quickly there after graduating. And I think that pivot for me was pretty meaningful in terms of thinking about, is the Navy a long-term career for me? Or is there a point in time during this phase of my career where I may, I may want to step off and do something a little different and go back into the private sector, which is ultimately what I did. 
Once again, a roadblock was placed in front of Bruce's immediate goal. But that forced pivot opened up Bruce's eyes to alternative future possibilities. When you learn that the world can make arbitrary decisions for you, the next step is to make even more intentional choices. That way the whims of institutions or of other people don't truly determine your fate because you are steady enough to make a clear choice concerning your future goals, yet nimble enough to be flexible by the means you use to get there. When I exited the service, lucky enough to go back to grad school full-time, I got into Columbia and I ended up going to Columbia for, for my MBA. And when you go to New York City, especially with a military background, you're trying to figure out what do I do now? I think one of the obvious things that a lot of people gravitate toward, including many of my classmates in business school, is finance. So I initially actually worked at Morgan Stanley's Investment Bank in New York when I was in grad school as an intern. And that was a great experience. I really enjoyed it after my internship. I reflected on the investment banking career sort of progression, and I was looking for something that was maybe a little bit less focused on corporate finance and something that had a broader set of roles and responsibilities day to day. I had an interest in hardware products. I started exploring different opportunities inside of operating companies where you were likely to be given a great deal of autonomy and responsibility quickly and drink from that fire hose and kind of led me to talk to a few folks that were at Apple at the time. And this is certainly beyond the iPhone launch, right? We're into sort of iPhone 4 at that time, but that company is growing like a weed. And it's just the amount of hiring that Apple was doing. They, they just had too much work for the amount of people that they had. And the impression that I got from the folks that I spoke to there was, if you can come in here and you can demonstrate that you can add value, the company has more work than you can possibly consume. And you will just learn so quickly and work with so many different engineers, so many different folks on the legal side, different suppliers, vendors, different technologies. And I just took a leap of faith when it comes back to your question about why procurement and global supply management it just looked like a, a role that was going to put you at the center of so many things going on and really give you the opportunity to navigate and add value to the company. And I think that proved true. Apple was great, and I had a really great experience there. But how in the world did Bruce make the choice to leave a company like Apple? Apple's cool, Bruce. Why did you leave, man? We need to know. I guess the short answer is I didn't really want to. Like Apple was great. And I think the summary is like I figured out I probably would want to experience something different at some point. And so for me, it was then a matter of time. Okay, what's the perfect time at which you would make that transition? There's no perfect time. So then I, I started talking with Zooks and I think the, the kinds of things that I would have wanted to be on the list of qualities or characteristics about a business that I would leap out of Apple and go to, Zook sort of checked all those boxes for me. You had the opportunity to come into something very early stage. I wanted to stay in the, in the hardware business. I wanted to join a company that was ambitious, even audacious in terms of its mission, and really was biting off something that was a big problem, a problem I believed in. That's really what drew me in. And I think ultimately the final sort of cherry on top was, as I started back in sort of 2016, as I started to learn more and more and more about the space, which was certainly fairly nascent at the time, I felt like the technology was inevitable, right? Like the ability to do what it is that we're trying to do is it's coming. It's really a matter of time. And ultimately, 
There's no guarantees that a company, any, any one company that's, that's chasing this can pull it off. But the way that Zooks is thinking about it, that really resonates. When it came down to it, Bruce left Apple because he had a higher purpose in mind. He wanted to learn and grow more. Zooks provided Bruce the opportunity to participate in a company early on its development path that he really believed in while taking an expanded role. But what exactly was Zooks doing in the autonomous vehicle space that made them stand out? While other companies were working on software to transform existing cars, Zooks had a different plan in mind. We thought that the right way was to rethink the vehicle itself from the ground up and build something that was really purpose built for this new market that doesn't exist, right? Robo-taxis are, they're not out there. You can draw the corollaries between this and Uber or Lyft or whatever, but at the end of the day, this is a new thing that nobody has experienced before. And if you have the technology to do it, why would you not start from a clean sheet of paper and really mm -hmm. re-envision what this can do? And that I think that's the thing that Zooks has always, the magic it's always had and what it's really stayed true to. Zooks is a vertically integrated company determined to control both the software and hardware for its vehicles. Vertical integration is often considered a high-risk strategy because of the time and financial investment required to do it successfully. The procurement promise is no doubt complex. So what did Bruce learn at Apple that helped him get the wheels churning at Zooks? Apple takes this approach to procurement to sourcing that it really has to be something where the sourcing managers are involved at the ideation phase. You have to have a seat at the table, even if you're there really just as a fly on the wall and trying to understand the dialogue and trying to understand what the engineering leaders are discussing and the direction that they're trying to take something. It gives you an opportunity to right up front, start to ask questions see how you can help, see how you can support them. And so that was something that was very important for me to bring over to this role, especially when we were starting from nothing. It was basically myself and a dozen engineers. Where do we go with this? To be able to sit with them all the way at the beginning in 2016, as we started to really think about the vehicle at Zooks and say, hey, let's kind of map this out and think three and four and five years down the road, how do we want this to play? To create something new requires engagement and teamwork from those on the engineering side and on the procurement side. Of course, procurement is quite different from company to company. The velocity of the operation, I think, varies a little bit depending on the nature of the engagement. We have a team here at Zooks within the organization that we refer to as our indirect procurement team. And our indirect procurement team is really taking care of our internal customers' needs on a day-to-day -day basis. So maybe there's engineering services, there's software license deals, there's cloud infrastructure, there's maybe we need a valet outside. Right? There's all sorts of little things that we have to spend dollars on. And we want to make sure we're getting value for our money and we're working with the right partners that are motivated. That team is working on, at any given point in time, 60 to 80 agreements. And so the velocity there is extremely high, and it's very important that we can make those 80-20 judgment calls and really move fast every day. On the flip side of that, you have a team of people that is focused on building the vehicle. I would say the velocity there is actually quite a bit lower, but the decisions you're making can have these long tail effects. For example, if you start working with a supplier on a particular system, an electronic drive unit, right? A motor inverter gearbox three-in-one. That is not a very fungible kind of engagement. 
So once you get deep into that engagement, you're, for, for lack of a better term, you're kind of stuck for a period of time. That is your vendor. That is your partner. And so the process by which you go about selecting that vendor and determining what scope they can have and making sure that the agreement is appropriate, and that is a much longer term, much more methodical process. The other thing that I would say is consumer electronics generally and the automotive industry operate at different speeds. Coming over to Zooks from Apple, that was a big learning for me. I think I brought a lot of naivete into the role thinking that like, hey, I know how we did this at Apple. This is how this must be done. And I very quickly learned that the sort of traditional automotive supply chain, which is extremely important to our success, by the way, right? Like we cannot do this by ourselves. The, the, a lot of the traditional automotive supply chain is also going through a bit of a, a shift, but they're coming out of decades of success operating in a certain way. And for us to move the needle there and really bring them along on this journey that we want to go on is no easy feat. And it is not high velocity. It, it, it really takes quite a bit of time to do that, especially when you're new startup, venture back, series A. This complex supply chain is why traditional car manufacturers, folks like Toyota, Volkswagen, and Ford are not fully backward integrated. In other words, they do not control and produce every part that goes into their cars. While Zooks may still have to rely on building relationships with vendors within the current supply chain, what makes the company really stand out is that they are even trying to build a car from the ground up at all. Why is Zooks so willing to go through the procurement headache? Why doesn't it just focus on retrofitting existing cars with their software and avoid vertical integration altogether? What was the fundamental motivation for why Zooks is so committed to building its own vehicles? Find out after the break. When I need help, I want someone who understands where I am now and where I'm coming from, but with a broader perspective. The folks at Highland are like that. Highland is a true partner to more than half of Fortune 100 companies, a partner that understands your industry and offers expertly tailored solutions that evolve with you. With Highland, you gain a complete view of information across your organization along with the agility to compete at the top of your game and deliver better customer experiences. Highland is your X factor for better performance. Go to highland.com forward slash insights to learn more. That's H-Y-L-A-N-D.com slash insights. Zooks has a vision for an autonomous vehicle built from the ground up. But why start with this as the mission? Why didn't Zooks just build the software and have some huge company build its vehicles? We could theoretically have gone out with a blank sheet of paper and thought about how to design a vehicle from the ground up and probably gone and sought the partnership of a very experienced large OEM. And, and maybe back in 2014, 15, 16, like that may have been a, an attractive proposition and maybe somebody would have wanted to look at that with us. But I think when you do that, the power dynamics get a little bit uncomfortable, especially if you're a small company, Series A, and you don't really have the market power or the might to fight with one of the big three or something like that that you may have struck up a partnership with. And every time that you on your side are going through this development journey and need to make a significant change to something, you're going to be there with them negotiating about that change. 
and they may or may not want to take that journey with you. And the one of the things as part of this vertical integration that we understood is we, we really have to try to keep control of the hardware programs so that we can be flexible, so that we can make the changes we need to make as we learn and grow. Even if you go to one of our competitors today that is thinking about a ground up vehicle and is starting to talk more about a ground up vehicle and their vision for that, it's not all under one roof. There is an arm's length relationship there with a parent company, for instance, who is really taking over and controlling the vehicle program. Here at Zooks, that's not the case. It's all within these four walls. Every aspect of the project is, is here at Zooks. It takes fortitude for a company like Zooks to go its own way and say, we're going to build the cars ourselves, especially where there are larger manufacturing companies eager to act as big brother or sister. Vertical integration is the more complicated route, but when done correctly, the benefits can be significant. Take the example of SpaceX, a vertically integrated company that builds most of its components in-house. In contrast, SpaceX's key competitor, United Launch Alliance, outsources manufacturing. The United Launch Alliance's dispersed supply chain results in increased expenses as it must pay the cost plus profit margin of many of its suppliers. SpaceX, on the other hand, is able to produce what it needs at cost and is able to launch a rocket for much, much cheaper. According to the Department of Defense 2018 budgeting estimates, the DOD pays anywhere between $200 and $420 million per launch with the United Launch Alliance. Compare that to the 83 million and 96 million launch contracts the Air Force has closed with SpaceX in recent years. For Zooks, vertical integration has served them in similar ways. The advantages touch different aspects of the company. Managing every aspect of the supply chain allows us to from the outset, select our partners carefully as we possibly can. By doing that and controlling the supply chain, as we mature as a company, as we learn things internally and or simply want to make a different decision about our supply chain strategy, we, we have full control over that. We're not stuck in anything. And we have to date, over the course of the past several years, revisited many decisions that we've made. And we have made optimizations and improvements from a technology perspective, from a supply chain perspective, maybe it's the geography, maybe it's the capabilities of the partner, maybe it's a financial decision, but we have made many optimizations. And so that vertical integration from a vehicle engineering and a supply chain perspective, like we, we have that full control and that's, that's proven very beneficial for us. I think that vertical integration also, if you're on the software side and you are a customer of all of these sensors and, and compute and control systems on the vehicle that really as a system become the driver, right? We have the ability to do two things. Number one, we can play with that sensor suite in such a way as to best optimize our field of view, as to best optimize the overlapping modalities between sensing systems. So anytime we find the need to make a tweak to the sensor suite, that's something that we can do pretty quickly in full concert with and consultation of the, the software team and our system design and mission assurance team, which is kind of looking at the overall system safety assurance, et cetera. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is because we have a ground of vehicle and we have this test fleet of Highlanders, 
By controlling the ground up vehicle, we have the ability to make sure that our level three fleet, our test fleet, as we call it, again, these Toyota Highlanders that many people have seen sort of driving around in Las Vegas and San Francisco. We want that, think of like the eyes and ears, the sensors on the outside of the vehicle between the two systems. We want them to be all as identical as possible. Almost as if you were to like make the Highlander disappear and just replace it with our go-to-market intent level five vehicle that we rolled out last December. We want it to fit seamlessly inside of the sensor positioning that you have on that level three vehicle. And if you don't have that vertical integration, doing that is much, much harder because you're beholden to whatever vehicle form factor you can ultimately use as that platform for a retrofit. We wanted to be able to build a test fleet that was ideally identical. And it's not identical today, but it's something that we are kind of moving in the direction of. And that way you can basically take all the learnings from the testing that you've done on that level three vehicle and really seamlessly port them into the level five vehicle. It's apparent that controlling the supply chain helps with optimizing the integration of software and hardware and also increases Zooks's ability to utilize their test fleet and then incorporate what it learns into its own fleet. But is this desire to control the supply chain only to create a fleet of autonomous taxis? Or is it for some greater purpose, like playing a role in helping sustain the planet? In 1987, the United Nations published the Brundtland Report, also known as Our Common Future, that argued for sustainable development in consideration of environmental and human resources. The report reads, and I quote, many critical survival issues are related to uneven development, poverty, and population growth. They all place unprecedented pressures on the planet's lands, waters, forests, and other natural resources, not least in the developing countries. The downward spiral of poverty and environmental degradation is a waste of opportunities and resources. In particular, it is a waste of human resources. These links between poverty, inequality, and environmental degradation formed a major theme in our analysis and recommendation. What is needed now is the new era of economic growth, growth that is forceful and at the same time socially and environmentally sustainable, unquote. That report was 34 years ago. The need for sustainable development and subsequent sustainable practices to care for the well-being of this planet was pressing then, and the urgency has only increased. To give some perspective on how cars alone impact the environment, according to the EPA, a regular passenger car emits 4.6 metric tons of carbon dioxide each year. Zooks is committed to doing its part to help reduce its carbon footprint. That's a journey that we're also on, overall sustainability. And I think it's multifaceted. We've looked at a number of different pillars that we're exploring when it comes to the future of sustainability here. At the ground floor today, we currently look at our carbon footprint as a company. And so we take some steps internally to try and neutralize that. We also purchase RECs on the open market, which is a common practice to ensure that we are carbon neutral, at least in these early years. Then we're starting to look further forward and think about our charging infrastructure strategy for the vehicle fleet itself. For example, we have a site in San Francisco that we've selected to be our initial sort of hub for charging for service of the fleet on a day-to-day -day basis as we start to do more and more deployments there. 
And there are opportunities to actually make sure that the power that we're using to charge our vehicle fleet on that site is coming from fully renewable sources. But there's power being brought into San Francisco from the Hetch Hetchy Dam, which is 100% green, 100% renewable. And that's something that we're trying to, or at least we're thinking about using for that site in San Francisco. So that's one, one specific example of something that's part of the broader strategy of when we're charging our vehicles, how do we think about the future and how do we make sure that we're charging with renewable sources? That's one piece. And then I think the next layer, and we're going through um, an analysis on this now, is how do we work with our supply chain? Our supply chain is sustainable. And I think that's one of our sort of longer term goals, right? How do we set up requirements with our supply chain and think through the right set of incentives for our supply chain to come along that journey with us and think about how we can be a more sustainable overall vehicle supply chain in the future. Zooks cares about sustainability and not just as the latest PR buzzword. Its name is based upon the plant cells zooxanthellae that live inside coral and help sustain it with food in the photosynthesis process. From the genesis of the company, the goal has been sustainability. Zooks is not a finished product, nor is its desire to be a sustainable company, but it is sincere in its desire and its approach. Having values is the first step. Setting up processes to fulfill them is the next. Realizing its sustainable vision isn't something Zooks is left to chance. Every foundational decision and every vertical integration is intentional, setting it up to be able to achieve that destiny. No matter how the market might turn or supply chain might change, Zooks is building a company whose resiliency will ultimately allow it to overcome any obstacle and in many ways, control its destiny. I don't know about you, but when I have a decision to make, I look for information. I may look through emails, documents, photos, and files in multiple places. And if I'm lucky, I find what I'm looking for. So it's amazing to me that while I have trouble finding a single file, some organizations' success hinges on making sure that the right people can get all the right information they need when and where they need it. Like hospitals, insurers, banks, and all sorts of businesses. I don't know how they do it, but our friends at Highland do. Highland empowers more than half of 2020 Fortune 100 companies with tools that help make sure the right information gets to the right folks easily and automatically and makes business processes smarter and more efficient. Highland is your X factor for better performance. Go to highland.com forward slash insights to learn more. That's H-Y-L-A-N-D dot com slash insights. You've been listening to Business X Factors, created and produced by our team here at mission.org and brought to you by Highland. Are you enjoying this show? Like really, are you actually enjoying the show? If you are... I would actually love it and be extremely grateful if you rated us and gave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This really does go a long way and it helps to ensure that more amazing listeners just like you can find the show 
and lets me know how I'm doing. I mean, really, I want to know how I'm doing. So let me know. If you enjoyed this episode and want to dive deeper into the topics discussed, be sure to check out the resources section of our show notes where we've included helpful links, articles, and books you can use to further your learning. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jeremy Bergeron, and I'll catch you next time on Business X Factors. Oh,